Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Momna Hajmadi from the University of Bath explores some of the non-conventional patterns of behaviour and links them to how the brain works. Thank you very much for your kind words, and it's a privilege to give this lecture today as it's probably one of my first to a general public lecture, so do let me know if things are too simple or too basic or too complicated at any point. Uh, What I'm going to talk about today is a little bit on what actually drew me to this field of neuroscience. I started off in radiation oncology, and that I thought I'm going to cure cancer. Of course, like any 16-year-old at the time, I thought that is it. And I did succeed, at least in mice, I definitely cured cancer. So I have achieved one of my goals. But the second point is, when I came to Bath, I just discovered what a fascinating area neuroscience is. And I, I felt that it was a shame I wasn't exposed to much of this in my undergraduate years. And what I'm going to do in today's lecture is not focus so much on my research, which I'm doing on neurodegeneration, but just talk about some of the fascinating aspects of this field and how there are still still so many unexplored questions that are worth researching on. I thought I'd start off with the ancient. Uh, Some of you may recognize the name Aryabhata was the Indian scientist way back in 476 who has been widely credited with introducing the numeral zero in maths. And in this day and age, we have... Science has progressed so rapidly that sometimes there are some scientists who say, so what's left to discover? Hasn't everything that needs to be discovered already been discovered? But it's not the case at all. And one classic example of this is Professor Barry Marshall from Australia. This was way back in the early 2000s, in the turn of the century. And he was a physician, and the current dogma at the time was that ulcers in the gut are caused by stress, the buildup of acid in the gut, and that's what causes ulcers, and that's it. All physicians were told that was the textbook version, But he noticed that it's not just the acid buildup in the gut that causes this reflex. It's actually a bug, a bacterium called Helicobacter pylori. And he noticed that if you have a large proportion of this bacteria in the gut, that is what causes ulcers, and it's nothing to do with stress whatsoever. He told this to his friends. He told this to colleagues. He even did an epidemiological search on various case studies, published the paper, and still his colleagues were not convinced. So out of sheer desperation, he actually ate or drank a vial of the bacteria himself. And lo and behold, he did a little tissue biopsy of his gut, and it was flooded with ulcers. And this was the ultimate test. So this is a man who took it to extreme lengths, of course, to convince his colleagues that there is a cause and effect. It is the bacterium that causes the ulcer, and persistence is the key. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2005 for medicine. But this also leads us to neuroscience in the sense that 
there are still lots of questions, basic questions. You know, why do we smile? Why do we laugh? Why do we have certain emotional responses to certain stimuli which is unique to that individual? Is it all to do with our brain and our neurons? This is the, what, this is the question I'm, I'll try to explore in this lecture today. And what I'll do is start off with case studies. And case studies of patients who are rare, who display certain neurological behavior. And actually, these patients are the people who allow us to understand which part of the brain is involved in what specific function. Again, there are some neuroscientists who say, for example, if I show you a little green man in this room, you'll all say, woo, that's unusual. But there might be some people who say, statistics is the key. Show me 10 green men in this room, and only then will I believe that there are green men in this world. So neurology defies all that. All you need is one single exception to the rule. And this is what gives us some insight in how the brain works. So I'll start off with examples, and hypothetical, of course, here in names. But Gisela had a car accident, and as a result of that, she was fine afterwards. The problem was that she suffered from something called motion blindness. And things we take for granted, like movement, for instance, it's only people like her who allow us to understand how this movement perception is taken in by the brain. What she sees the world around her as a series of static images, like photographs, literally. So the problem with this is that, for example, if she wants to pour a cup of tea, she doesn't know when to stop because all she sees is an image of the tea going in the cup. She doesn't know when the cup is full and the cup overflows. So these are little problems that result from this condition called motion blindness. I'll talk about how this works in a minute. The second case study is a librarian in New York who had a sudden fit of laughter. What had happened was that he had had a mild stroke, which he himself couldn't figure out. It was so small in scale. But the consequence of the stroke was that he just started laughing and he just couldn't stop laughing. And in fact, when you laugh, actually, you don't take in enough oxygen. And he laughed for almost 48 hours nonstop, and he literally died laughing because of a lack of oxygen. The third case, David. Again, as a result of an accident, he was critically ill for two weeks. He was in a coma. He recovered, luckily enough, and everything was fine except the fact that now he thought, when he see, saw his mum, he thought it was someone else. It was an imposter. He could not make any emotional connection with the woman who looked like his mother, but he knew that she wasn't his mother. And again, talking on the phone, he was fine. He recognized a voice. Auditory was perfectly fine. But the visual, when he saw her, he thought, it's, she looks like my mom, but she's not my mother. And the last one are cases of people like Ed and Sarah. Ed, whenever he touches something, he gets a distinct taste in his mouth. 
For example, if it's a burger, he gets a very bitter taste. If it's something to do with a sharp object, it might be a sweet taste. It's an instantaneous thing. Sarah, when she hears a note, she sees the color blue. But it's a different color if it's another note. For example, if it's a B-flat, she sees the color red. So this is sort of strange behavior in the sense, I don't know, maybe even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people presenting with these symptoms, they wouldn't even say to their friends, let alone anyone else, that they're doing this. And they would probably be considered as strange or mad even. But these are people who suffer from genuine conditions which are perfectly normal in every respect. But there's one small change that happens in the brain that gives us this profile of exactly which part of the brain does what, and there's some strange goings-on in the brain which allows us to understand how this happens. So I'm presuming the audience doesn't have a lot of exposure to how the brain works, but if I'm wrong, please do raise your hands and tell me. We'll start off with a little introduction to the brain itself, tiny little thing in comparison, just about weighs as much as a bag of sugar, just over a a kilogram, just about 2% of the body weight, not a lot. And again, typically, what you have is the characterization of the lobes of the brain. You have the two hemispheres. Each uh, part of the brain is divided into two hemispheres, and these are quantified based on or named based on the bone that it's closest to. For example, you have the parietal lobe over here, the occipital lobe right at the base of your neck, and that's where it's called the occipital lobe, the temporal lobe over here on the sides just near your ears, and the frontal lobe over here right near your forehead. So these are sort of the generic four lobes. You also have uh, partitions in the deeper part of your brain into uh, areas called as the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, but I'm not going to go into excessive detail on the brain structures there. But what they do allow us to understand is certain parts of this brain have a link to certain function. For example, sensory function is related to part of the parietal lobe over here, part of the frontal lobe over here. Motor function is mainly on the uh, parietal lobe over here. There's a bit of an overlap as to what neurons go across and come over to the other side. So it's not like a perfect division, although it looks like this, a very nice little neat little picture but it's much more uh, hazier in terms of function. But these are specific regions of the brain that control, for example, movement or responses to various senses like visual or auditory or taste, etc. Parts of the brain that are embedded deeper, for example, just between your ears, literally almost between your ears, there are two C-shaped organs called as the hippocampus, hippocampus from the seahorse, because that's the shape it has. And that part of the brain has been linked with learning and memory. And this also gives us some clues in terms of neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease, for example, where you have this part of the hippocampus is the first one that goes, that dies because of neuronal cell death. 
So these are simply parts of the brain that have very specific defined roles. It's also the cerebellum, which usually gets uh, lost in most uh, neuroscience descriptions, but the cerebellum lies just above your neck over here, responsible for balance, coordination, posture. The back of your brain is the bit that controls vision. Again, a quick overview of nerves. So a brain is made up of white matter, gray matter. Each of this has the presence of neurons. Neurons are typified by a cell which is a highly specialized cell. It's weird in shape because it doesn't look like any cell in the textbook. It's got this cell body, and it sends out this one single long process called as the axon, which sends out projections to various sensory organs. For example, it could be the muscle, it could be the eye, any of the senses, for instance. Near the cell body, you also have projections called dendrites, which make contact with other nerve cells. And this neuron is the one that gives us the current or the action potential or the movement of ions through it that, stim that is stimulated by these nerves. So what happens is typically is an influx and efflux of sodium-potassium ions that causes a current, a voltage shift across the membrane of this nerve cell, which results in neurotransmission. So that's the electrical stimulus. And if you have a nerve without anything else, just this thing alone, it's, it's quite dangerous. And that's why usually this long bit of this nerve called as the axon is covered in a sheath called a myelin sheath. And this protects the impulse that comes along the axon. And this sheath is not simply a bit of wax, waxy coating lining the neuron. It's actually another cell. It's a highly specialized cell called as the Schwann cell or oligodendrocyte, which covers the neuron completely, except at certain junctions where there is a release of ions. So myelin plays a huge, very important role, and in fact, there are some conditions where you have a degeneration of the myelin sheet because these cells die and that can lead to neurodegeneration too. So just a quick overview. So neurons and glia. Glia are glue-like cells. They are the supporting cells that surround all these axons. They provide nutrition. They make sure the conditions are just right for the neurons. So basically the glias look after the neuronal cells. This is simply a picture of what we do in the labs, we usually grow neuronal cultures in a Petri dish, trying to imitate the conditions that we get in vivo in an animal model, and do various experiments for either neurotransmission or neurodegeneration or neuroprotection, all these sort of experiments in a Petri dish. In fact, this is one I'm really proud of. It took me a long time. It took about two weeks for it to thrive I had to show it. And what we also do in the lab is we can actually stain these neurons and glia cells using specific dyes. For example, this is a culture of these neurons grown in a Petri dish, and what you see is you can get dyes, 
linked to a protein that is found only in that type of cell. For example, if you had a neuron, you take a protein that only stains neurons, and in this case, this is the red dye that you see here. This protein is tagged with that red dye. And when you add it to the cell, here you can see which ones are the neurons. You can take another protein, tag it with a green dye, and you'll find out which ones are the glial cells, which are the green bits over here. So you have the mixture of neurons and glia. And what you also see are blue bits, which are actually the nucleus of the cells. So what this shows you is there are other cells in this dish, not just neurons, not just glia, but other supporting cells. There are other types of supporting cells like astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, etc., which are found in a culture. And that's not been stained in this picture. So I showed you a nice single long neuron with a cell body, axon, and dendrites, but it's one single cell, and our brain is a huge mass. Our brain isn't made of one single neuron. Our brain is made up of several neurons, but how do they talk to each other? How does the communication in terms of the nerve impulse go from one stimulus to an end result? It's almost like it's a dead end. Each neuron has a dead end, or a cul-de-sac, and this is called as a synapse. A synapse is basically the point where one neuron talks to another neuron. And the way it talks is by using certain chemicals called as neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters, what happens is this is a synapse. This is the sending neuron. This is the receiving neuron, also called as the presynaptic and postsynaptic terminal. This sending neuron, when the impulse comes through, let's say this, there's an eye over here, it's sent a signal, and this nerve ending, it reaches this nerve ending. This triggers certain chemicals, these neurotransmitters, to be released by this nerve ending. And this chemical then goes to the gap between these two. This is very, very tiny, just a few nanometers in distance, really. And it binds to certain receptors that are found on the postsynaptic terminal. And this is how a certain neurotransmitter being released results in a very specific receptor binding to it. And this then continues the action potential across the receiving neuron. So this fits a neurotransmitter that is excitatory. It continues the synaptic transmission, so it goes on. For example, in stroke, what happens is typically what you have is that uh, stroke is prolonged. You have certain neurons dying off because the neurotransmitter that is released is glutamate, and glutamate in huge amounts is toxic to the neuron. So it overwhelms this synapse. There's so much glutamate that the neuron can't cope, and usually it kills itself by a process called apoptosis, programmed cell death. It's a nice, neat, systematic way to die, but not good for the brain. Excellent if you can get it to work in cancer cells, but horrible if it happens to the neuron. So this is simply an EM or electron micrograph showing a synapse and a synaptic cleft. And how many of these do we have? 10 to the power of 15, one quadrillion synapses in the human brain. Makes the U.S. budget deficit look tiny by comparison. 
So if you had to translate that, it's almost half a billion synapses for every cubic millimeter. And this is why even there are some theories in terms of how synapses mature, you know, postnatally, why do you have to stimulate children in the womb or babies in the womb? And as soon as they're born, you try to keep the stimulation going through these various inputs, visual, auditory, etc., is to strengthen and mature these synapses. The more of these synapses are strengthened, the longer they will last. And that's, that applies to whatever age you are. Again, one of the ideas behind Alzheimer's disease, for instance, is to enhance your memory, keep doing these... Kawa, is it Kawasaki Saki or no? That's a motorcycle, isn't it? Sudoku. What's his name? Sudoku. Sudoku, and there's these little Nintendo games, Dr. Kava something or the other. I forget. But he's got these little games, again, to keep your mental agility going. And that's what you're doing, is you're strengthening your synapses through all these mental exercises that you do. But at the research level, we have neurosciences is an ocean, as far as research is concerned, just like cancer. There's several areas in which scientists do research, starting at the behavioral level, where you look at people itself, study how behavioral responses work in response to certain stimuli. This applies to animals. You also look at systems, at circuits, groups of neurons, single neurons. You can grow them in a Petri dish, at the synapse, at the membrane, at the genetics, right down to the molecules, structures, etc. I'm not going to go into detail, but some of the models that are commonly used in the lab are rats. Obviously, it's not easy to do genetic studies or tissue or system-level studies on humans. You have to resort to animal studies for this sort of work. And typically what you do is isolate the rat brain, take slices or grow them in a Petri dish, and look at specific... This is a cell body with dendrites with one axon going across to the surface over here. And you can work out what this neuron will do in response to a certain stimulus. And here, if I show you, what you see here is the same sort of picture, but this color indicator on the left is the voltage or the current that is generated in this neuron. So this is at almost a slightly negative phase here, and if we add a chemical, for instance, it will result in a response which you can see as the color change. And typically that response is, for example, you can measure the level of calcium. Calcium will flood this neuron. It will be propagated along the axon and migrate out over here. So you're change, seeing a change in the electricity as it migrates down. So this is sort of imaging in real time, so to speak. And that's at the single neuron level. But you can also do it at the whole body level. For example, using MRI, uh, fMRI, which you can use tagged epitopes or tagged compounds, and you can monitor the level of glucose uptake in certain parts of the brain in response to a certain stimulus. For example, if this person is shown this image with several dots, this is what the brain will do. And if you see this image another part of the brain will light up. So you can have a feel for which part of the brain is responsible for 
processing that stimulus when you get it. So functional MRI and even some newer whole body scans are very effective in giving us some idea as to which part of the brain is responsible for what stimulus. But the problems are, of course, you have to go into a big machine, a scanner, and you have to have that compound to ingest. And also, you can't do all sorts of things. For example, if you're feeling particularly amorous, you can't stimulate that under a CT scanner. If you're feeling a certain emotional response, you can't do that with a CT scanner. So there are some limitations to this process, but it has been effective for certain questions. One thing I wanted to say was basic questions, how we see. Now, all of us probably know exactly the eye is the organ of sight. This is the structure of it, and it works like a camera. Basically, what you see is an image. You get an inverted image, which is reflected on the back of the eye, which is the retina. And this image, or the uh, stimulation of this image, is then taken by a bunch of nerves called as the optic nerves out to the brain. So it goes from here to here. The bit of the eye just behind the lens where the image falls directly is called as the fovea. And it has been described arguably as the most important square millimeter of tissue ever in the human, in the human uh, body. Because this is, as far as sight is concerned, of course. But this is the fovea that dictates color. It dictates what is the object and also how big or depth. All these things are covered by the fovea, which stimulates the bunch of optic nerves at the bottom, just below the fovea. This is a sheep eye, and what I wanted to show you was simply this is the eye lens. This is the fovea lying right behind it, and just below it here is the bunch of optic nerves. And how does this signal work? Because the back of the eye, the retina, has specialized cells called as photoreceptors. And these are of two types, rods and cones. Rods are abundant. You have almost anywhere up to 50 to 100 times more rods than cones. And rods are primarily responsible for black and white vision. In fact, if you do an experiment and go out in the dark on a moonlit night, can you see color? Probably not. You can only make out shapes. You see things in black and white because the intensity of light that processes color is done by cones, and cones require a lot of stimulation. You have to have an intense illumination in order to stimulate the cones. The cones are sort of buried deeper within the rods are these big bits over here, and the cones are these tiny bits over here. So cones require more intense light, and they require the stimulation to visualize color. And the color is based on the primary pigmentation. You have specific types of cones for three basic colors, red, green, and blue. And how we see color is through the light falls on these photoreceptors on the retina, for example, the cones, which are bipolar cells. This, in turn, triggers a response in the um, cells over here, and this sort of the intensity of the signal in terms of which cone has been activated and which sends the signal then dictates the impulse that is sent 
to a part of the brain called as the LGN, or lateral geniculate nucleus, which typically lies somewhere just above your ears, right in the middle. And these nerves, if you look at this vision from the top instead of a side view, what you get is the nerves from the optic nerve go across the hemisphere. So that's why the vision from the right field goes to the left hemisphere, and vision from the stimulus from the left field goes to the right hemisphere. And this has to naturally traverse a point called as the chiasma, optic chiasma. And here you can see some of these neurons go across to the right. Some of them actually go across to the same side, for example, from the right to the right. So there is a distribution of the networking that goes on in the brain as far as the visual stimulus is concerned. And in terms of color, the intensity of color is dictated by which of these cones is stimulated and how much of it is stimulated. You'll see intense blue if you have only the blue cones being stimulated and the green and the red, no stimulation at all. So you get a whole array of colors based on which cone has been activated. So here's a little experiment. What I'd like you to do is... Make a note of the colors here, red, blue, yellow, and green, and then look intensely without blinking or wavering at this black spot right in the middle for about 20 seconds or so. Okay. And right. Did any of you notice anything? Did you see sort of pictures? The squares are still there, right? Did anyone notice any whether the positions of the red and blue had swapped? Yeah? Okay. So this proves my point about the optic nerve and the chiasma, the field of vision. And what it also proves is that the stimulus, if you look at it long enough, that stimulus is constantly going on. Even when the stimulus is removed the nerves or the receptors get desensitized in the sense that the channel is remains open, the stimulus continues even without the presence of that picture. And that's why your brain is still seeing the image, and that's what you think you are seeing. So there's no such thing as magic. It's all in the mind. Another thing of we, things that we take for granted, perception of movement, like moving images, we have, although our brain is a superb organ, there is a threshold. There's only certain things it can do. When it's processing images, what you think as a nice fluid motion is not. For example, you can't see a bullet going out from a gun, can you? Because the movement is so fast that the eye cannot keep up. On the other hand, if you look at the clock, I'm sure my students here in the audience are aware when they're looking at the clock waiting for the lecture to end, you can't actually see every second of the movement of the clock face, of the hands on the clock face. So there are movements that are too slow and movements that are too fast for the brain to pick up. And sometimes the brain can even be fooled into seeing movement where there isn't any. For example, I'm sure some of you might have seen this. This is sort of optical illusions. But this is, again, to illustrate the point that Movement is a perception of the brain. It's what your brain is trying to make sense of the stimulus it's receiving. And that's why when you see the visual stimulus on the side, whoops, you can see that 
there is no movement. It's just your brain thinking there is movement. Let's try another little experiment. Again, some of you may have seen this, but this is a very famous Muller-Liar illusion. And what I'd like you to think about is whether the two lines are equal or not. Is one bigger than the other? How many of you say it's bigger? There's a difference in size. How many of you say not? Okay, so obviously everyone's seen this before. <laughs> but what I'll tell you is, how does this actually translate in terms of what our mind perceives? Because what the brain is frantically doing now is processing this in terms of depth. The retina is telling you there is no difference in the two lines. They're absolutely the same. But the brain is getting confusing signals because even how do you judge how far a person is or how far an object is from you? Again, it's your brain that is doing the 3D translation. It's working out what is the distance. And that's why some of us, me including, have problems with distance. I have a problem with time, keeping to time. Hopefully not with this one. But this is what our brain is processing. And this vision or this image is actually looked at in a different way by the brain. For example, it's looking at it in terms of depth. Here, this is looking at this image as something that is far away because the way this object is shaped. And here, it's looking at it as something that is closer. For example, the corner of a room in which you're in, or you're looking at a building from the outside. So when you look at this, Although your retina is saying it's the same length, but your brain is processing it to say the depth doesn't match up. It doesn't seem right. There has to be a difference. One is definitely longer than the other. So Gisela, the housewife who suffered from motion blindness, she, remember I told you, she sees the whole world around her as a series of images. And the reason why that happens is... Because of the injury, the accident, it damaged a part of a brain near the occipital lobe, the imaging, the visual cortex at the back. Now, this has several regions, the V1, V2, V3, V3A, etc. And she had damaged a part of the V1 region of her visual cortex at the back of the brain. And this part of the brain sends images in... Other parts of the brain, there is this simplistic way of showing this, is the what and the how scenario. So the retina is telling you what this is. It goes to the visual cortex. It translates this image in terms of movement, depth, etc. And then how is it translated in terms of distance? Or how is it translated in terms of making it into one streamlined motion that is the problem, that is the part of the brain, the V1 part of the brain that deals with that processing power. So it sends neurons from here to part of the cerebral cortex which deals with this translation, this processing. And that's why when she damaged her V1 region, she couldn't do that, and this resulted in motion blindness. Something else for you to think about. What is the difference between a laugh and a smile? Oh posing for a photograph versus bursting out loud when you hear a nice joke. There's a complete difference as far as how the brain processes it. Let me show you how. If you smile, it's the pathway is, okay, it goes from the eye, goes to the back of your head, the visual cortex. From here, 
it sends a response to part of the brain dealing with motor effects or physical movements. So if it's a smile for a photograph, the visual cortex is saying, okay, the person said cheese, you have to move the muscles around your lips, move it outwards, and that's what you get, a sort of rictus grin sometimes. But the, this is sort of the voluntary muscle movement where it's dictated by the brain. This part of the motor cortex is responsible for this, posing for a photograph. But if you have a laugh, it's a different part of the brain that is stimulated, not just the motor cortex, but in addition to the motor cortex, another part of the brain called as the limbic region, which lies deep within your... Um, it's very close to the hippocampal area. This le- region deals with emotion and uh, physiological responses to emotion. And that's called as part of the brain called as the basal ganglia and the thalamus. So when you have a natural response to a laugh, not only do you have a stimulus sent to the motor cortex, but you also have a stimulus sent to the limbic region, which says, ooh, this is funny, and that's why you have a coordinated reflex of motor movement plus the emotional response to it. So George, who couldn't stop laughing, who literally died laughing, what had happened in his case was that George had a small stroke or an aneurysm or a blockage which pushed against a part of his brain called as the hypothalamus, shown over here in this arrow. And this hypothalamus is part of the limbic region which deals with emotion and memory. So because it had swollen up, it pushed against the neurons dealing with emotion and he couldn't stop laughing. And again, combined with the physiological response to laughing where There's a lack of oxygen to the brain for a prolonged period of time, and that was the reason why he passed out. David, who thought his mum was an imposter, David has a condition called as Capgras syndrome. And here what you have is the connections to the limbic part of the brain responsible for recognition and emotional responses has been broken as a result of the accident. And again, this is why we get a feel for which part of the brain, the limbic region, controls the neurons that project from the visual cortex into the amygdala or the hippocampus, which are part of the limbic regions, has been cut off. And now we know that here, this part of the amygdala deals with emotional responses or emotional uh, response to relationships, for instance. That's why... His brain was telling him, this person has exactly the right features of my mother, but I don't feel any emotional connection to her, so she can't be my mother if I'm not feeling any connection there. Lastly, Ed and Sarah. Ed and Sarah have a condition called a synesthesia. This is also described as cross-wiring of the senses. So when we have a typical response to taste or vision or color or or, or hearing, in their case, you have a mix match. So neurons that come from the visual cortex, for instance, that deal with uh, processing color, processing uh, distance. Instead, they go and hook up with a part of the brain that deals with taste. So when they see something they get a different sensation. 
And that's why you get this cross-wiring of the senses, hearing colors, tasting shapes, etc. And it's not abnormal or strange. It's simply the way the wiring in the brain has been swapped slightly. So stimulation of one sense involuntarily induces a perception of another sense. And it's still an ongoing area of research. We, there's lots of theories, but the two most prominent theories are that it could be one reason is because you have extra connections happening. So one neuron is sending out more axonal projections or dendritic projections to another part of the brain dealing with another sense. That's why you're getting these neurons connected to both parts. So this is active growing. And the complete opposite of that theory is actually these connections are being lost. We start off with all these interconnected networks, but during growth and development, these networks are broken off by neuronal cell death or apoptosis. This is part of the normal sculpting of the brain. All of us have that. But some of these connections are lost and some of them are not. Maybe that's the reason why you have this cross-wiring of the senses. And this is simply to show you exactly which part of the brain is responsible for that. I'll move on to something a little more interesting. Now, you have three seconds to identify a shape or a pattern in this. Anyone? Can anyone see a shape? How many? Yes. A synesthete will not see it as a black and white image. A synesthete will see it as this specific image. They'll see it as red and green, and they'll immediately pick up a shape looking at this pattern. So this is not the conclusive test, of course, but these are one of the little tests to detect or diagnose synesthesia. In fact, the frequency of these is much higher than we thought. It's one in 200 or even more. And for some strange reason, in the U.S., females have a high predisposition to synesthesia compared to males. We don't know why, but it is true. It's eight times in the U.K. Females are eight times more likely to develop synesthesia compared to their males counterparts. Here's another little test: um, how your brain processes or handles mixed messages. So when you see this word, so your brain is saying this is a word. It says pink. But if I ask you to say the color out loud that you see, so what your visual stimulus is telling you versus what your part of the brain responsible for analytical behavior for processing this information is different. So you're getting conflicting messages coming in the brain. So it's much more difficult to read this as blue, green, purple, rather than saying pink, red, orange. How about this one? If you do a little test, you'll find out it's much more difficult, especially you start off very promisingly. You go quickly, starts to slow down, slow down, slow down, and by the time you reach here, it's really slow. So this is another way of showing you exactly how this fascinating part of your brain processes images. I think I'll skip this, but this is a little bit on Alzheimer's disease and part of the brain called as the hippocampus which is, deals with neurodegeneration. And one way of detecting this is using MRI. And you can scan for 
the, what you see highlighted in red is the part of the hippocampus, and you can see that in a normal brain you have a certain area detected in this hippocampi. But in one of the tests for detecting Alzheimer's is something called as mild cognitive impairment memory tests. And you can see in this mild MCR, you can start seeing a reduction in the area of the hippocampus. And in a patient diagnosed with AD, you can see a severe reduction of the hippocampus. And these are animal models that are used in research. If you identify the genes responsible for Alzheimer's disease, you can develop animal models in which you knock out the gene and find out what the resulting phenotype or the behavioral responses are. For example, how would you test memory in a rat? There are tests, actually, there are behavioral tests where you, Morris Maze is one of them, where you train the mouse to go to a reward like a sweet or a nut or a water, and it learns the task. It knows which place to go if it wants that reward. But if you have a transgenic mouse, it cannot learn, so it doesn't go to that reward, makes lots more mistakes. So there are animal models available to study Alzheimer's disease. But what I want you to take away from this lecture is not that I seem to have, may have seemed to have uh, told you that it's all about the neurons. This is exactly what it is. It's black and white. We are the sum total of our brain. But even among neuroscientists, this opinion is now changing. This is simply one of these optical uh, illusion uh, figures that was done by Escher to show you the, how our brain is tricked into processing imaging. And in terms of, we still haven't answered, is it all simply due to neurotransmitters? Is it all simply due to neuroreceptors? It's not. There are some questions, if you look at the broader picture, we still don't know why we laugh. In, in, we have the physiological response, but why does one have a certain response, and why does one's someone else have a different response. After all, presuming it's the same neurotransmitter in all our brains, same networks in all our brains. Why do we have this individual specificity? Why do we have this gender differentiation? Why are males versus females, for example, this stereotype of females being multitaskers, brilliant at everything? No, I'm <laughs> kidding. But, uh, you know, there's all these various questions in terms of the gender divide. In terms of neuroeconomics, for instance, why are certain cultural differences in certain uh, global uh, economies dictated to certain mindsets? For example, the work ethic in one country would be slightly different to another country. How do they approach these attitudes? Is it something that is conditioned, or is it something that is genetic? Neuroaesthetics, you know, art and the brain. How do we, someone's, Damien Hurst would be reviled by some. He would be admired by others. It's a question of perception. Ethical aspects of behavior. All this is part of emerging areas of neuroscience. I don't have the time to go into, but if you want to read up more, there are some three books which I've listed over here, which are a fascinating read by eminent neurologists in the field. So that's it for today, and thank you very much.